Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 76, The Transformation of Stalin. Last episode, well, two episodes back, Koba, the Georgian revolutionary, left the seminary much to his mother Keke's distress. Instead, he became a member of the Bolsheviks, following his idol, Vladimir Lenin. With his wife dead, Irashmili wrote, quote, After his wife's death, Koba showed great zeal in organizing the assassination of princes, priests, and the bourgeoisie. The last shreds of belief in God and the punishment of committing the ultimate sin of murder was no longer in Koba. The transformation into the mass murderer he was to become as Joseph Stalin was almost complete. But much work was still to be done as the Tsar was still around and the Ochrana was still watching his every move. Watching and soon acting. In 1907 he was arrested, but instead of a harsh punishment, which was given to many like him, he was sent to the town of Solvichigotsk, home of 450 fellow revolutionaries. By 1909 he escaped, only to be rearrested in 1910. Despite recommendations to the contrary, he was sent back to Solvichigotsk. Quote, in view of his persistent participation in the activities of revolutionary parties, in which he has occupied a very prominent position, and in view of his two escapes, the highest penalty, banishment to the remotest regions of Siberia, for five years is appropriate. But despite this recommendation, he was treated quite leniently. On January 10, 1911, Koba moved in with a young widow, Maria Kuzakova. With her, he fathered another son, Konstantin Stepanovich Kuzakov, a man who would live into his late 80s, far longer than many who knew or were close to Stalin. Back and forth, from exile to freedom, back to exile, Koba went until his last escape in 1913, when he headed to Vienna, where he was to make his first impression on Leon Trotsky at the home of the son of a rich Baku resident, one Skobelev. Trotsky writes, quote, Suddenly, the door opened without a knock, and a strange figure appeared on the threshold. A very thin man, rather short, his face with a grayish tinge and clearly visible pockmarks. He looked anything but friendly. The stranger emitted a guttural sound, which might have been taken for a greeting, silently poured himself a glass of tea, and just as silently left the room. That's the Caucasian, or Caucasian, Drugashvili, Skobolev explained. He's just got into the Bolshevik Central Committee and is obviously beginning to play an important part there. The impression he made was difficult to describe, but no ordinary one. The a priori hostility, the grim concentration. It was here in Vienna that Koba became Stalin, in my humble opinion, when he authored an article entitled The Stormy Petrol of the Coming Revolution and signed it Stalin, also known as Man of Steel. Skriabin became Molotov, or Hammer. Another fellow Bolshevik became Brunovoy, 
as hard as armor plating. But Koba chose the name Stalin and not Stalinov. He wanted to sound more like his idol, Lenin. He was sent back to Russia in 1913 by order of Lenin to stay with a person named Malinovsky, a member of the Duma, who was also a Bolshevik. What Lenin and Stalin didn't know was that Malinovsky was also a police informant, a provocateur. Quickly, Stalin was arrested and sent to a God-forbidden place north of the Arctic Circle, Kurika. Many exiled prisoners would die here. Spandaria of tuberculosis. Dubrovinsky of suicide. Koba's letters to Lenin and the party went unheeded. Koba was left on his own. He was sacrificed for the good of the party. Stalin would never forget his abandonment in this frozen hell. He would make millions pay with their lives, as well as sending millions to the same hell he stayed in. Only he made it much worse. World War I was raging, and the Tsar needed more recruits, so Joseph Jugashvili was sent for. Unfortunately for mankind, his withered left arm kept him from hitting for the front line, where he would have likely died for the Tsar he so hated. Instead, he made his way back from exile in February 1917, three months early, and just in time to see an astonishing event the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II on March 15, 1917. But first, Stalin made it to the town of Achensk, where he met fellow Bolshevik Lev Kamenev, someone who would help him take out Trotsky, and later would meet his death at the hands of his new friend. Kamenev, the intellectual, would go on for hours while Stalin listened and learned. Then the news came that the Tsar abdicated. Immediately, the pair headed off to Petrograd. They were one of the early arrivals from exile, which allowed them to grab onto leadership roles, a role which first Soso, then Koba, and now Stalin was natural at. Murders and assassinations of those involved or associated with the Tsarist regime began to occur all over Russia. But Stalin had little time for such pettiness. He needed to be known and put into higher positions in the coming revolution. This first coup was taking over the Bolshevik newspaper Pravda, or The Truth. Kamenev and Stalin pushed out the young pups who were in charge, one of whom was one of his only friends that would survive him, Molotov. As Molotov put it, Quote, in 1917, Stalin and Kamenev cleverly shoved me off the Pravda editorial team. Without unnecessary fuss, quite delicately. While Petrograd burned, Stalin stayed in the editorial offices of Pravda. But he also wiggled himself into the good graces of the local Soviet, which was headed by old friends of his from Georgia, Nikolai Chikhaidze, Erakli Tseretili, the Soviet, of which Stalin was now a member of the executive committee, was the real power in Petrograd, not the provisional government. If you remember back to the podcast of Lenin's grab for power, there came out order number one of the Soviet, 
which came out of which made the army units answer to them, not to the government. The provisional government ruled as long as the Soviet permitted it. Koba, one of the leaders, was more powerful than his idol Lenin, for now. While writing for Pravda, he signed his name as Koba Stalin, showing the transition from one persona to the other. But Koba was really no more. That person was left back in the Arctic. Stalin was now the man. As Edvard Radzinski put in his book on Stalin, quote, The old Koba, the pathetic, loyal fool, who had been so ruthlessly exploited and so easily forgotten, had been left behind in Turokhansk. He would no longer be pulling the chestnuts out of the fire for anyone. From now on, he served only himself, himself and the revolution, insofar as the revolution could be of service to him. While working at Pravda, Stalin became aware of the vast amounts of money pouring in and knew where it came from, Germany. According to the German Minister of Foreign Affairs to the German ambassador in Moscow in 1918, quote, it is in our best interest that the Bolsheviks should remain in power. If you need more money, telegraph the amount. Lenin arrived in Petrograd and presented his April thesis, which Stalin repeated and expounded on in Pravda. On April 29th, the Bolsheviks had a conference to elect a central committee and set its agenda. Lev Kamenev railed against Lenin's abandonment of the Marxist theory that required them to wait until the proletariat provisional government held power for a while before unleashing the People's Socialist Revolution. Instead of attacking Kamenev personally, Lenin sent Comrade Koba Stalin on him. When the vote came up for membership on the Central Committee, Stalin came in an amazing third behind his idol Lenin and Zinoviev. Stalin had moved up in the party with only two, maybe three men ahead of him. Only Lenin, Zinoviev, and Trotsky were more powerful. Soon, soon, that would change. But now he was part of the four-man leadership with Lenin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev. But another man was coming, Trotsky. Now, Trotsky always knew that Stalin hated him, but he was so self-assured he wasn't worried. He should have been. But Lenin knew this as well. The leader used this mutual animosity to his benefit. Stalin would hold on to this dislike for decades, until he had Trotsky murdered in Coyoacan, Mexico, in 1940. While the provisional government was doing its best to fail to govern effectively, the Bolsheviks kept building up its strength. On July 6, 1917, knowing of the growing threat, arrest warrants were issued for Lenin, Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev, and Lunacharsky, but strangely, not Stalin. Lenin was willing to allow himself and Zinoviev stand trial. Quote, Grigory and I have decided to stand trial. Let us say goodbye. We may never see each other again. Koba convinced the pair that they would be dead before a trial took place. Comrade Stalin helped smuggle his friends out of harm's way. Lenin was hidden in a shack owned by a worker named Yemelyanov. 
Yemelyanov, a loyal Bolshevik, was soon to be ousted from the party by Stalin, and his two sons, who helped hide Lenin, were killed in one of Stalin's prison camps. From this shack, which was to become a communist shrine, Lenin sent letters dictating his commands to the next Bolshevik Congress, headed by his loyal subject, Comrade Stalin. Stalin, by this time, was staying with his friends, the Aleluyevs, whose teenage daughter, Nadia, would become his next wife. Anna Aleluyev, Nadia's sister, would write of Stalin's time with the family, which displeased Stalin when it came out in 1947. He had her put in prison and held in solitary confinement. She was released after his death, half insane. Because of the Kornilov affair, a topic I will cover at the end of this podcast, all Bolsheviks were released from prison. Lenin, now in Finland, was still waiting for the right moment, when on September 12th and 14th he gave the order. The Bolsheviks were taking over the Soviets, all over Russia, with two main ones on their radar, the ones in Moscow and Petrograd. Zinoviev and Kamenev voted against an uprising at this time, while Stalin, of course, sided with Lenin. In a strange twist, though, while Trotsky called for the two men's ouster, Stalin came to their side. Now, why, might, why you might ask, did Stalin do this, and back the two men who dared to doubt the wisdom of his idol, Lenin? He loathed Trotsky and knew that Zinoviev and Kamenev would be important allies in the future, until, of course, he had no more use for his friends. The decision was made to go for broke, so late October or early November, depending on the calendar you use, the Bolshevik Revolution began. What you need to know about Stalin, if you haven't already figured it out, is that he was a calculator, a person who calculates each and every decision on how it would affect his rise in the power structure. We should also realize how improbable this rise to power at this point is. An abused, smallish, partly maimed young Georgian boy, only 20 years out of a Russian Orthodox seminary, is now on the precipice of being one of the five most powerful men in all of Russia. A Russia once dominated by one person just six months earlier, the Tsar. Dwell on that for a moment. Something like this is almost impossible to imagine in world history up to this point. Most of the greatest and most infamous rulers of the past were maybe not born into their positions, but at least part of their background within the nobility in some way or another. Sure, you can probably name some ruler here or there that rose up the ranks from a lower standing, but I dare you to find one like that who rose to a level of power that Stalin would reach. This Georgian son of a cobbler was now in the midst of a power grab ready to force a Marxist revolution that even Karl Marx himself had not foreseen. But as Trotsky put it, Stalin was the man who missed the revolution. He also said, when roles in this drama were distributed among the actors, no one mentioned Stalin's name. No one suggested any assignment for him. He simply dropped out of the game. But for Trotsky to say this was a clear departure from the truth, and he knew it. As he was quoted as saying that during the coup, 
Contact with Lenin was mainly through Stalin, as he was the person of least interest to the police. Lenin needed a man of steel like Comrade Stalin to quell his timid nerves. As Rodzinski puts it, Lenin knew that should the uprising fail, his punishment would be merciless. So he entrusted himself to the tried and tested Koba, who had demonstrated his competence during the July days. According to the history of the revolution, uh, and according to Stalin's history, he was in the midst of the coup in Smolny within Petrograd. This revisionist history was to last well past his death until the era of perestroika, when the real truths came to light. Stalin was also able to keep his real actions during the revolution a secret, as almost everyone who participated in the coup would be murdered by his orders. The coup was, of course, successful, and Stalin was installed as the Commissar for Nationalities. He was a minister of the new Russian government. He had arrived. Join me next time as we see the rise to complete dictatorial power of Joseph Stalin. Now today our snippet into a historical moment and our person focuses on the life of Lavra Kornilov and the Kornilov affair. Lavra Kornilov was an officer in the Imperial Russian Army during both World War I and the Russian Civil War. Born to a Cossack family, early on Kornilov was viewed as an extremely bright boy with a knack for language. He was sent to military school, first in Omsk, then to the Mikhailovsky Artillery School in St. Petersburg. He served the Imperial Army with honor especially during the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, where he was involved in the battles of Sandapu and Mukden. He was awarded his first of two Order of St. George medals for bravery. In World War I, he was a valued commander, moving up in the ranks to Major General. In 1915, he was captured by the Austrian-Hungarian Army, but somehow managed to escape in 1916. But having seen the atrocities of war and how terribly mismanaged the army was because of Nicholas II's, what you put it, schizophrenic leadership, Kornilov became highly critical of the Tsar. So when he abdicated the throne, he moved up yet again in the ranks and was made supreme commander-in-chief of the Russian army after a successful attack on the enemy forces in July 1917. Now, even though Kornilov was an anti-Tsarist, he was even more of an enemy of the left, especially the Bolsheviks. In July of 1917, the Bolsheviks made their abortive grasp at power, which led to the arrest of many of the leaders of the party. Kornilov believed that they should all be hung and that military discipline be reinstituted throughout Russia, and especially within the ranks of the army. The provisional government, especially Alexander Kerensky, saw Kornilov as the savior for the teetering democracy. According to rumors, Vladimir Livov, the one-time procurator of the Holy Synod of the Russian Orthodox Church, was sent to Kornilov with a message from Kerensky. In the alleged message, Kornilov was asked what kind of government he favored if he were to come in and brutally crush the Bolshevik revolutionaries. His three choices were a Kerensky-led dictatorship, 
an authoritarian government with influence from Kornilov or a dictatorship under Kornilov. The general responded by saying that only a military dictatorship under his command would be satisfactory. Kerensky, through Lvov, also supposedly asked that Kornilov come to St. Petersburg with his troops to destroy the Bolsheviks and all other leftists. But the president of the provisional government got cold feet as the army of Kornilovs approached, so he ordered that all Bolsheviks be released from prison, armed and ready to support the government, as Kerensky feared a military coup. The all-powerful Petrograd Soviet convinced Kornilov's men to stand down and join their forces instead. No shots were fired, and by September 1st, five days after his troops began their march on the capital, Kornilov surrendered himself. While Kornilov escaped and eventually joined the White Army, he died in battle in 1918 while fighting in the town of Ekaterinodor. His legacy was not his brilliant military career, but his effect on Russian and world history. The upshot of the failed Kornilov affair was the freeing and arming of the Bolsheviks, which gave them far more firepower when the October Revolution came to fruition. The people were also fearful of returning to the Tsarist times, which gave more support to the Bolsheviks. It greatly weakened the Kerensky-led provisional government by showing how weak the president really was. Another devastating consequence of Kerensky's actions was the alienation of the military, especially the officer corps, who were disgusted with the president's treatment of their commander. When Kerensky needed their support to stop the Bolshevik coup attempt, they turned him down, which guaranteed communist victory. All in all, the Kornilov affair was the turning point in the year of 1917 and set the stage for communist rule for the following 80 years and the death of tens of millions of Russians. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group or the podcast website at russianrulers.podhoster.com. Remember, no www in the front. There you can post a question, make a comment, or just say hi. So as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.